I think the minute I stepped on a practice field for rugby, the calling happened. Uh, an eight-year plan to be on the team. And I was in it within two years. Don't wait until you are a pro to be a pro. Right? And I walk around with a rugby ball sometimes, and they're like, what is this child on? It looks like it was a heavy hit. It's up. It's not an option. You know, that's the first time I played, like, professional. I'm making rugby money. How can I make money outside of it? And those two Scottish guys, and they said, oh, you're, um, you're here for the movie. That rugby is a game for all shapes and sizes, all cultural um, aspects. He looked at me, and he says, you guys are awesome. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to another great episode of Grow Rugby. My name is Gift Gift Timey Bailu, and this is the show where we speak to people about the opportunities that they have found, created, or taken advantage of. Y'all, we got another great show. It's bringing back the segment again, Developing, Developing Rugby Part 2. We got featured today... Kyle and Tiana Granby, the founder of the, of the BIPOC Touring Rugby Squad. That's Black, Indigenous, People of Color, Touring Rugby Squad, Roots Rugby. Uh, we have Blaine Scully, former captain for USA Rugby Men, World Rugby World Cup participant, and uh, all-around amazing guy player. We also have, we have Farrah Douglas, head coach for Mount St. Mary's, great conversationalist. Ram Eddings, the founder of the Grey Wolves, a predominantly black rugby touring squad, one of the first ones here in the U.S. um, that were strongly popular during the 90s and early 2000s. And finally, we have uh, world rugby ref uh, Emilia Luciano, also commissioner for the Ivy League Men's Conference, Rugby Conference, and just some great information to talk to him. You guys are going to really enjoy this. But please, guys, before we continue on, don't forget to subscribe to this on YouTube. And definitely, if you're listening to it on Apple Pod, Spotify, or whatever the podcast station that you are, please go ahead and subscribe on because we like love giving you this information and making sure that you guys get to know what it is to be able to continue the development of rugby forward from a cultural, personal, financial, and, of course, uh, systematic method uh, of playing, whether it's uh, physical or whether it's coaching or whatever the way the industry is that you feel for it. And you guys also can find us on Instagram at Grow Rugby Show. And last but absolutely, absolutely not least, guys, definitely check out one of our sponsors, Green Geeks. You guys can hit the link down in the description uh, and you guys will get 60% off your first year of a server. And this is, is something that we use religiously because of the fact that it not only it provides us with so many options to be able to create as many websites as we want to be able to the, the uh, adjust and combine and customize to whatever we need but it allows us the freedom to be able to earn for ourselves and to be able to take control over our own destiny which is important for any rugby organization player or just an individual person who wants to be able to uh dictate the way that they are presented outside uh so definitely go check out greengeeks.com hit the link down below and you will get 60 percent off uh your first year and also please don't forget to go check out rugby outlet mall uh again we're about to switch everything out the culture is about to change 
we hit you up with all the stuff that's needed to be able to represent rugby in the best way possible, as well as find unique ways to be able to stand out so that you know how to swag for the style that you believe in. So I hope you guys enjoyed this next episode. Developing Rugby, Emilia Lucianu, Kyle and Tiana Granby, Blaine Scully, Farrah Douglas, and of course, the great Ram Eddings. First off, we have Farrah Douglas talking identity through rugby. It's interesting because you're now still talking about at this moment. Like, now we have so much more insight into women's rugby. There's so much more developed. Still a long way, still ways to go to where it should be, but far further than where it was. And particularly for yes. that time. Um, and this was early 90s or so, correct? Early yeah, this would have been 90, 94. 94. Yeah. So you're, you're right at that, that early stage. So there, there's kind of two parts that I, I, I keep kind of noticing here of constantly entering and loving these super awkward moments that make you uniquely <laughs> characterized while also simultaneously, like, also emblemating these characteristics that sometimes don't get churned naturally, and then you get to open them up, and it's like, it's like just revealing it, you know? Like, for you, was there, is that, has that been kind of like this, this uh, game process? Because uh, for you, in, in, in discovering kind of a self in this, rugby created another variation of a, a self-realization um, Cross-country in high school created kind of a self-realization. Having to switch out from soccer was a self-realization. There's these awkward moments that just open up these new doors for you. Is, 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 would that be an accurate way of maybe looking at it? Um, yeah, I think that's a, it's a, it's a pretty good way to explain it. Um, you know, it's funny that you say that because in my head, the, like, the intellectual like, nerd that exists in there, um, is going, yeah, yeah, because, you know, in, so I was, I was a science major, and I eventually swapped over to um, a double major in English and African American studies, Mm -hmm. and I went to grad school for a bit for um, English literature, and then quite a bunch of times for that, the rugby bug, (laughs) Um, but one of the things that I've always been fascinated with is like identity because it's very much performative and you know we I I think there's probably like some like core thread that constitutes who we are if you will like if you want to get like uh, you know an aura or or whatever it is but like I very much think that yes but what I didn't realize what was happening to me with all of those doors opening and closing and going in one back out to the other and kind of like shifting around is that I was discovering that who I am as a person in the world very much is going to adjust and mold based on what was in front of me, the environment that I was in, whoever I was dealing with, um, very like contextual, if you will. And so I think that what sports did for me was open up this knowledge that it took me a really long time to actually be able to articulate that that was what was happening is that who Farah was in the world 
was going to be performed differently at every, every moment of the day. Um, the me in September would probably be different than who I might've been at the beginning of October. Mm -hmm. But like the core of who I am was never changing, but I was always going to perform a different version of me based on what I was doing. Right. And I think that, I think that's what sort of like the athletic shifting, if you will, as I was sort of discovering my likes, my strengths, the things that challenged me, um, is that like that idea that identity is very, very much performative at its core. Is that part of the reason why you maybe selected African-American studies as one of your majors as well too? Uh, kind of setting a base because uh, even whenever you mentioned about whenever you first got to Bowdoin and it was through uh, uh, a people of color, uh, I guess it was a black weekend of black visitation weekend kind of situation. Do you think that added into it where it was just like, you know, if I set this foundation of a further learning on myself, it also shows kind of what you were saying, the type of person I'm going to be in terms of my environment and subsequently how I perform on the field even afterwards or on the track or anything. I think, I think that is a much more articulate way of talking about something that I didn't recognize was happening at the time. Um, So growing up being raised by a white mother and being of light skin, um, I, I, to be honest, I, it probably, there were moments growing up where like race kind of like peppered itself in, like getting picked up, from a sleepover and my friend's little sister coming to the door and looking at my mom all wide eyed and looking at me and then going, did you know your mom is white? And I'd say, yeah, you know, and, and spending most of my, my childhood growing up with my mom's family and not having a lot of contact with my dad's family. I didn't really think in terms of color until Bowdoin. Interesting. And all of a sudden, well, because you get like, so you've got this predominantly white institution. Right. And you've got a group of people of color, um, not just black and African-American, but you've got, you know, Latino, Hispanic, Asian students. um, And you've got like, you know, call us like a core group. And within that, the experiences are very different. I mean, I think people would like to essentialize like African-American experiences, like this is what it is, but it's not. It's It's so much more complicated and complex and layered. And so for me, I never, it just was something that I I didn't really think deeply of until I got there. And then all of a sudden it was in my face with, um, there are a bunch of like racial incidents that had happened on campus. And having an assortment of friends from different sort of like different backgrounds and different ways that they were existing in the world. All of a sudden it was like this realization that like, I am different than my mom. Right. When I go out into the world, people will judge me based on the darkness or lightness of my skin because you know, you've got the inner layering that happens within the the black community around colorism. colorism. And that was happening to me in college. And, you know, I would talk with family members of my friends who would assume because of the way I enunciated words or spoke, like my grammatical sentence structure, that 
I was white. I went and visited my best friend for one of our breaks and she's Puerto Rican. Her grandmother yelled at me the entire break and was angry because I didn't know my language. And no matter how many times we told her I wasn't Puerto Rican, she would not believe it. You know, and understanding me. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it was like, I was having this like identity crisis and awakening that was happening at the same time. And I think that's probably what, without even realizing it, drew me to African-American studies. Right. We have Amelia Luciano, world rugby ref, speaking about performing at an elite level and the expectations from your family. Well, I, I, the other thing that I always love is, especially when it comes to stadium games, is the feeling of, you can, it's almost like you can feel that energy in the air. And it's, it's not, like, it's, there's big games and there's just like, and especially at night, I think there's, there's always that. For you, and you've now had this on multiple occasions, we'll, we'll talk about it more, but when you have that, has it gotten to a point where you are kind of just used to that, 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 that increased energy that's going into air as you're entering into a big game? Or do you still feel like you have to remind yourself to settle uh, as you're going into these situations? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So I think the bigger the game, the more likely it is that you're going to have those like nerves and the kind of jitters before. Um, And I think it depends on the situation too. So if you can feel the stadium, like you were saying, and everyone is really into it, like when anthems are playing, that type of feeling to me is almost overwhelming. And so I have to do something to ground myself in that moment. And there are particular things I think about when I'm standing there listening to the anthems and trying to get myself in a a calm kind of, I don't know. State, a meditative state. Yeah, almost meditative. Yeah, just just being uh, calm and clear-headed to start the match because I want to give the game the best game to the players that they can have. Of course, of course. You know, so when you were at that high-performance camp, like, what was it that stood out to you? Obviously, you know, there's a certain amount where it comes to refereeing that is your foundation, which you were already getting WPL. You've been doing it for years. But when you went to that high-performance camp, like, what was it that you felt was so different? And especially the fact that it was focused specifically for women. So the most impressive thing to me was how the women from different countries and different cultures and backgrounds, we were all there as high performance referees. We're all capable. We're all qualified, fit and young for the most part um, and have done some high level matches. Um, But everyone's off field personality is so different. And especially based on culture, like some of the um, female referees were kind of, it seemed like um, they wouldn't speak unless spoken to. So they didn't, they weren't um, confident enough or it it just wasn't in their um, cultural uh, characteristic. Yeah, exactly. Um, To raise their hand and ask a question if they were confused. But if a question was asked to them, then the conversation would, would continue normally. And I had heard that people feel that way sometimes, but the way that I was raised in my personality doesn't fit that box. So I think that made me stand out in the group was that I am a traditional American um, in that <laughs> aspect. Gosh, she's so loud and aggressive. <laughs> These Americans. <no. laughs> <laughs> but I, 
come across as much more aggressive yeah. than most of the other cultures in general, just because of my personality and right. and the way that I am. But um, that was one thing that was impressive. And then we also did a, a lot of um, like quizzes on film review. And so we'd see a clip of something and say, is this, for instance, if it's foul play, should this be a yellow card, a red card, a penalty or a nothing? Right. Um, and some of that was interesting because my calibration uh, coming from rugby in the U.S. was slightly different than some of uh, what they would do around the world and what the world rugby trainers were suggesting. So it's been um, interesting to try and fit myself into a, a box that correlates with what USA, oh, sorry, what, what, what world, world, rugby is. world rugby is expecting as opposed to what USA rugby is expecting. That's interesting. Because you would, you know, obviously we always assume that there is a consistency across the board. Maybe, maybe if there is a, a difference, you'd think it'd be very slight, but maybe not too much or just. But I, I guess it also makes sense to a cultural element, uh, especially world rugby typically working off of Europe and over versus U.S. kind of being a little bit more introvert and then kind of working out. So, you know, you have your own set of rhythm and rules that are going to go with the USA rugby way of refing to some extent which is nice that there's a style intentionally or not <laughs> yeah so i think part of that is to is to how much experience the players have so in the u.s now when we referee we may be refereeing young players who have years of experience but generally most people are starting in college still so if you're refereeing a college game part of that refereeing sometimes becomes a coaching or an explaining the rules and Sometimes you're a little bit more lax, especially in lower level college. If if there's repeated infringements, it may be that the players are not understanding what's going on. Like you said, it may take five to six years for somebody to get it. And so generally, if I were refereeing a higher level match where the players know what's going on, if they're having repeated infringements, it's probably because they're either not paying attention or because they're doing it on purpose. Right. Whereas in a lower level college game, when I'm refereeing those guys, it's definitely not on purpose. They're just That's unaware. Just, right. That's naivete and ignorance at that point. So I think the smarter the players are, the more that you can anticipate what's going to happen. And then the more you can anticipate the way that you're going to interact with them and just referee the game like it's and like it's meant to be, yeah. <laughs> Kyle and Tiana Granby of Roots Rugby speaking about creating a culture that's bigger than just a sport itself. Done this one, and it is a question, obviously, you guys got a lot of, which was how do people become a part of this Roots Rugby movement, if you can, if you'd like to call yeah. it that. Um, you know, what what was it that you guys uh, kind of checklisted that you wanted to make sure that uh, would with maintaining the stronghold of the Roots mission and the Roots message while also allowing freedom of um, talent and expression on people. Like, what, what was it that you guys look for in a Roots rugby player? So this is something that is kind of been developing for us as well, what we actually want, like, through our experience through this last year, um, now we're sitting down and talking about what we want that to be. Um, we can speak about like yeah. Um, I mean, at first we just we were just looking for positive-minded people. Um, obviously talented. We were, we were hoping to do our best, but um, people that would gel and come together and not be problematic. You know, just about good vibes and understanding what we're about. You know, um, 
to start going to Vegas <laughs> when we first went to Vegas, you know, probably about uh, 16 of our 24 players didn't really actually know us. And uh, for those people to take a leap of faith to just jump into a brand new program that really hadn't done any tournaments together, pay a tour fee, pay for their own flights and like just entrust that we're actually going to do the right thing. Like that right there was the start of where we needed to be. You know, people that trusted us and that believed in what we were doing. And we had an amazing first tour. And from there, it's just been them spreading their word of mouth, you know, about what we did and what we went through. And then the people, the right people are coming about from that. You know, um, their friends are hearing about it. Oh, I want to be a part of Roots too. I want to be a part of Roots too. The right people are coming about They hear about their experience and then they, you know, drive um, the right people to us. I, mm-hmm. I feel that's what's been happening. Um, you know, of course, we started with the, the basic, like, send us your highlight reel and, and you know, send us a, a, a coach's referral and, you know, talk about yourself more. But the more we were developing relationships and, and such through these tours, it was kind of like, hey, you support us and you, you believe in our mission and you believe in what we're trying to do here. Um, you know, come on board. And even with summer sevens for me, it was like we were getting players of the non-African diaspora who were like, kind of hesitant but wanted to be a part of it and it was like no like this is this is about the culture like you you speak about as well and I feel like roots in itself we're starting to develop more than just an African diaspora culture or black culture we're developing our own culture you know our own roots culture and if that's what people want to be a part of and support then you know that's what we're looking for you know I I think that's real and again it goes back to obviously what I said Culture being the underlying concept for what rugby does and I think what makes it different. So to not only step from not it's not even stepping aside, it's it's moving evolving it from it just being a niche concept to being a customized and unique concept that goes something that actually has an everlasting effect uh, when it comes to 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 growth and obviously how people will fit into it because it's very difficult to create um, consistency unless people know what it is that they're expecting. So to be mm-hmm. able to know that you guys have been able to see that and look forward to that is, is great. So mm-hmm. it kind of brings us a little bit to with the HBCU Rugby Classic, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you guys on. And, you know, we talked about this last mm-hmm. year. Actually, I talked about this with Kyle and you uh, 2018, even for our first one, but really a lot more going to that 2019 year. Uh, mm-hmm. was about the concept of, of culture. Culture was always everything, and culture and networking and, and that development. So, you know, you guys are coming into this. <laughs> I got a tough choice to make here. <laughs> this is Charlie on the daily. We can choose wisely. <laughs> I'm making it real hard for me right now. Oh. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> Boss lady in the making. I see it. Yeah. I see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, coming into this, obviously you guys are entering in, we're, we're, we're entering into an area where, you know, you're going to have kids as well as collegiate students. Some who have played with you guys, high school kids who probably haven't heard about you and now mm-hmm. having a chance to do. Um, what are some of the things that obviously you've touched on a little bit, but what are some of the things that you want to uh, have expected from 
maybe next generation that could be coming in, even if that's, you know, three, four, five years or even just next year. Like, what is it that you want to be able to hope to express to the next generation as in their rugby journey and what you guys are expressing with Roots? Um, sure. um, I think uh, just first self-pride in who you are and um, where you come from. That's been uh, one of the biggest uh, comebacks that people are saying to us that um, when they went on tour, you know, they brought their sense of pride back. You know, they may now they, they want to go and say hi to other black random black people on the street because they feel that connection more that they, they should be proud of who they are and where they come from and the people around them. Um, so, yeah, just like our younger generation, just having more pride in who they are first and then not being afraid to go beyond what their coaches expect of them. You know, most of them keep ending up on the wing and just feeling like they just need to run fast or run strong and hard instead of being able to learn how to kick, how to chip it over, you know, how to really pass, take that 10 spot. I don't want the next generation to just be all over instead of uh, a prop, a second row or on the wing. Um, and just so that they also just know that they have support. Now, this whole program has been built for them. Um, so to know that they are not alone in whatever they're feeling, whatever they're going through, um, and just to stay hungry and keep, just keep reaching for their goals, like Kyle's saying, um, and to know that it's more than just about rugby, but it's, it's about families, about positivity. It's about spreading this to your communities. Um, and just becoming something great, uh, you know, and uh, just representing yourself and your culture well. Um, I, well, I certainly hope to be like that national side, basically, you know. We are representing the people, and I hope people have that pride that when they play for us, they feel like they're playing for a national side, you know. You can't always play for USA or, or Jamaica or something like that, but we're here to represent our people in another way. We're the subcategory national side. Just let it be known. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people have been telling us like they are willing to hang up their boots for national sides to come tour with roots because no. you know. Look, I mean, I look, look. I've I've honestly been a big believer that like part of that is like the future, like maybe not the future because I guess it already exists, mm-hmm. but like one of the elements that go with rugby that I've always been trying to figure out is. You know, we, we find ourselves getting sectionalized into, you know, the professional versus uh, the club. But, like, it's the travel component of rugby that also it makes it very uh, accessible, makes it very, maybe not accessible, but makes it much more unique again. It, it's kind of like, all right, I might not be pro in the classic sense, but if we're traveling to all these places... Right. Yo, I'm, I'm developing this network. Oh, I kind of can make my, I can, I can make my growth from there, you know. And so to have these little components, you know, you don't have to be a USA Falcons. You can be a Roots, you know. You can, you know, have to, <laughs> yo, you know, I don't remember what the other ones are. There's so many That's animals. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, have, have they seen our list of tournaments for the year? Like, let me right. go. <laughs> have you seen what, where we're playing? We got rugby town. We're playing against other like top top club teams. We're, we got Safari Seven. We're playing against national teams. Why wouldn't you want to be a part what, of this? What's the difference? You're paying for your flights. Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> this is not the variation. You may as well enjoy it all the way through. I mean, if you're gonna pay, you may as well take the. You're gonna pay. 
Blaine Scully, former captain for USA Rugby, talking about discipline and presentation. No, that's real. That's real. So I'm gonna I'm step on that one a little bit later, but I want to kind of go move forward from there. You got you had a great career at UC Berkeley, and let's also not take away the fact UC Berkeley is a great school. So there's there's a yeah. lot of <laughs> of concepts that you were able to to do. What what did you end up uh, graduating uh, uh, or studying at UC history? History? Yeah, because I thought I was gonna go to law school. Maybe still going to law school, but my my folks are lawyers, so yeah. Uh, I thought I would probably be, be doing, which is like history. You just learn, learn how to read, write, and make arguments. Like that's, that's law. So. I was about to say, are you, are you the guy that likes to research the most or like to, to implement the argument the most? I don't know, probably somewhere in between. <laughs> I, I can feel that. I've, people have always yeah. told me I need to try and be a lawyer because I like to, I will make my arguments. I do horrible research. But I will get the concept, and I will be all the way through that. You will fight for it, yeah. There we go. We're going to get this yeah. answer. Might take yeah. a little bit. We're going to get there. No, so you go out from, from UC Berkeley. You have a great career at UC Berkeley. Um, you guys got a couple national championships under your, under your belt as yeah. well, too. Yeah. And then you enter into the USA Rugby Program. That direction – that that transition, what was that for you? Because again, we're talking about another major leap in yeah. not just in what you're learning, but and not just your athleticism, but in even how your discipline and maturity has to be because yeah. you're dealing with a much wider range. Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate. I mean, the game was a little bit different back then. So when I, even when I was at UCLA, I was going to USA Sevens camps with with Coach Al Caravelli, and so I was exposed to sort of international rugby, probably before I was ready and before I had a right to, but, um, you know, it was really important for me. And, and, um, you know, I, I first played for the sevens team, I think in 2009. Um, and, uh, so I was, I was still in college then and then played again, um, on the last two stops of the circuit, uh, in 2010 as well. So I, you know, I played three, four tournaments on the circuit when, when I was in college and then also did, Churchill Cup in 2010, um, played against the England Saxons. So I had, I had an idea of, of sort of what it was like from an exposure standpoint. Um, but I also knew how much I needed to work on my game. And uh, because that's what I wanted to do after, after graduating is I wanted to pursue rugby at the highest level and be the best possible rugby player I could be. Um, and then you're right. I graduated from Cal and then, um, ended up getting my first full cap at the Churchill cup against Russia in the final game there. And then kind of made the world cup squad as a bolter. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, I think one of the, um, sort of things I try to tell younger rugby players and younger athletes is don't wait until you are a pro to be a pro, right. You, your approach and what, how you approach your game right. should be professional sport as a study, the way you treat your body, um, both, in the weight room, on the field, as far as your warm-ups and your and your your preparation there, your nutrition. I mean, you can be a pro in a lot of different ways. But being a professional isn't as my as Coach Bills always say isn't about being paid. It's about the mindset and how you go about your business, right? Exactly. So, so in in a lot of ways, you know, I was I was preparing as a professional and international before I actually was there, just just because of of me having clarity around this is what I wanted to do. And fortunate, I had 
I had some really important influences from Coach Clark, Coach Billups, and 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 my my parents as well, um, who were reinforcing what that looked like. And and because uh, it's all well and good to say that's what you want to do, but it's another thing to actually with do discipline it. execute. Graham Eddings, founder for Gray Wolves of Rugby, talking about inclusion and addition in rugby. You know, but I got. You know. <laughs> I, it's like you will not have be coming onto this field. There will be oh, no take care of my baby. Get away! Oh, get no, away! Oh, <laughs> oh. And, and and being with the gray wolves, I'd have been ruined. I, I'd have been just totally ruined, you know. Uh, so, uh. <gasps> no, I can understand. I remember. I know my mom. My mom had. Uh, she's only come to I think maybe two rugby games of mine. And uh, I remember the first time my uh, my mom came, my parents came. Well, my mom came. My dad only came to one other one, but my parents came. My mom came in. She 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 came through. And luckily, I think from playing football, she had already yeah. kind of braced herself for big hits or anything like that. But I remember sitting there and I'm like, okay, guys, all right. There's two things. One, let me just impress her enough to let her understand that this is a good game and I'm pretty all right with this. Like, I don't want to hear anything after. But the second one, please don't let anything major happen because I do not need this imprint of fear in this woman's mind right now. Uh, Yeah. It's it's, it's something about, like, you want to impress. I feel like there's the levels of of people you want to impress whenever you play. It's your parents first for the sake of proving that there's a reason why you're playing it. Right. And then it's your girlfriend to be like, yo, look, I am badass. Like, recognize yeah. me. <laughs> and oh, then yeah. it's like your closest friend is like, look, guys, look, look, understand. You can't be on my level. That That's the three levels. Right <laughs> oh, yeah. You know. It, so, and I think that that rugby, that it, you know, in, in a real sense, yeah, rugby kind of puts that in a lot of guys' mind. Like, we're talking about guys didn't want to come out. But they come and watch you play, and they watch that stuff. Going, you're tough. No. You're tough. Right. But I ain't coming out. Right. <laughs> oh, I like I said, it will always baffle me because it's like, yeah, yeah, man, you guys are so tough. You guys are crazy. I know. You should come. Nah, man. Nah, man. Bro, I just watched you like punch through a punching bag. How are you talking about? You're afraid of this little hit. These guys. You're afraid of these guys. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah! Oh god! Oh man! So so you played with this team for for ten years, traveling right. with them. So right. from what point did you start working on the Gray Wolves? What what brought up the idea of putting together the Gray Wolves in the first place? I think uh, I I know I I ended up playing in Portland, Oregon, also, and I think it was at that point in time that. And again, when I went to Portland, I played with the Portland team, uh, which was a Division One team, mm-hmm. uh, men's club. There was no blacks, so right. I was the only black on the team. Ironically, so, the less shocking thing that I've heard. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I started thinking about it then. Uh, that, yeah, I, I, I mean, you know that black athletes can play the game. Right. And, and so the deal was, and it's a great game. You know, I mean, when you, when you learn and all the stuff that goes on, it's a great game. And so at that point in time, I was like, okay, we need 
to do something. Right. And so that it kind of popped into my head uh, to, to, to do that. And, and then it took me a while uh, to, to actually get around to moving uh, and to doing it. But I, I just realized that, you know, black and other minorities can play this game. And, right. and in a sense, we were being shut out, you know, really. You know, I mean, uh, there wasn't a, a lot of recruiting going on for, 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 for minority players at all, you know. And uh, it, it was just that situation. I thought we've been cut out. But we could play the game. If right. We put our minds and learn the game. We could be very, very good at the game, and so that that kind of started it. So was it's this did did, did did the did the did that come into fruition? Uh, like when? What point in? Because I'm assuming that was while you were actually playing that this started coming into mind. Correct. Right. Or, so like, how how far into how how many years had you been playing? Uh, whenever you decided to, you started thinking about that, that concept. I, I think it was probably, it was, well, let's see, I went to Oregon, so 10, it was probably about 12 years, okay. 12 years that I, that it finally started to hit right after I moved to uh, Oregon, okay. then the, the idea kind of came up. So it now becomes kind of the interesting part. Well, this whole thing has been really interesting, but it's kind of the interesting part in the development period because Again, now you have a sport that is, let's for all intents and purposes, is still fle- is fledgling in in the U.S. And I know the West Coast was a little bit heavier with it than probably other parts of the the country. But you're still talking about a, a minority of players in and of itself. And now you're looking at it and how do we recruit black players who have either never heard of this game to begin with. Or they see it and they're just like, yeah, you're nuts. I'm not playing this. So how did you end up getting – how did you end up putting that together, that first tour uh, for a team and just even finding the people? Because uh, it's not like you had social media to be jumping off from. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, what, what I basically did is, that, okay, we used to have um, – uh, there used to be a, a magazine, a rugby magazine. Right. Okay. And it was a really good tool and it was uh, used a lot. So uh, I, I put that into uh, the magazine that we were going to start uh, a Grey Wolves team, a predominantly mm-hmm. black team, and so and so. And then this is what uh, I was looking for players that would be interested in doing it. And uh, the guys with the rugby magazine. They helped promote it. They 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 helped put it out there for me, and so on. And then uh, just a, a little word of mouth that I hooked up with a couple of other guys, and then I spread it with them, and then uh, it just kind of started to move. Uh, but the rugby magazine, I put a big article in there, and they pl- they they published it, and from there uh, we started getting contacts. Guys, thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed this. If you can, again, please check out some of our other episodes. Obviously, last week we did Developing Rugby Part 1. Um, prior to that, we had Tamara Van Loon, uh, the president for Curacao Rugby. Uh, we had Brandon Davis. Um, we had Jen Salomon uh, with 
Mexico women's rugby national side. I actually just played over in Edmonton. Um, and just so many great guests that we've had from Nia Tappers, Chetta Embers, Phil Fields, uh, uh, Derek Lipskin of uh, New York uh, Rugby, uh, Old Blues New York Rugby, and uh, uh, Roots Rugby, uh, Akinola Raymond, uh, who will be presenting on the Premier Sevens. And just, just a great list of people. Coma Gannett Fishman on the USA Rugby Board and Kurochiba Rugby. Like, just so many people we've gotten a chance to talk to. So, I hope you guys enjoy. I hope you guys take it all in. Check it out. And I hope, most importantly, that you know. I hope that you're happy. I hope that you're healthy. I hope that you know that you are highly favored. Until next time. Cheers. <laughs>